My subject today is on the subject of gender roles. And I've entitled the uh, sermon, Created Male and Female. <clears throat> I think one of my um, goals as I uh, studied and prepared to preach this is that I think that it is obvious that we're living in a time where there is a lot of confusion about this. And I'm not necessarily trying to say all that there is to be said on this subject in the time that we have here. I think um, one of the things that especially um, burdens me as I think of this uh, subject is um, being a man, I think it's easy for me to perhaps um, internalize some of the responsibilities that are part of what the Bible says is the role of a man, and that is to take responsibility. And I think um, far too often it is easy for us as men to become lazy and passive. And in my opinion, I think that is perhaps the starting point for the cause of confusion in the society that we live in, is that men in general, I think, have become very passive and lazy or conversely have um, become, <clears throat> have become very um, uh, lazy in the sense that they have turned to, let me just fix this here. That laziness and passivity is sometimes interpreted or come through in ways that resort to being abusive. I think either one, either one of those extremes are actually sort of part of the same problem. Um, abusive and men and men who resort to power and oppression and control, it's actually a form of, of laziness. They're not willing to care for um, to take charge of their responsibilities the way God intended for them. On the other hand, to just do nothing and to distance themselves from any or all responsibility that comes in, as part of being in a relational world, in a relational society, I think, again, is a, maybe the opposite ditch. As Christians, though, our starting point for understanding human gender is... Scripture, the Bible. And the Bible is not quiet about this subject. There are various passages in the Old Testament, and I've chosen to um, take the book of Genesis here as sort of a starting point, which I believe God speaks to the idea of gender and sexuality roles here in the um, right at the time of creation, before the fall, I should add, and expounded on that uh, after the fall, after sin came into the world, after there was a, a um, yeah, after, after sin changed the picture, there's uh, even more said. But in the New Testament, there are numerous passages that speak to this. And uh, we'll be referring to uh, various places in the New Testament where um, gender roles are discussed and talked about. <clears throat> 
In the creation account here in Genesis 1, 2, and 1 and 2 especially, God created by calling out. He said, let there be. Let there be. He, his, his spoken word. And creation and in Genesis 1 and 2 comes by a series of separations. He called light out of darkness. He called dry land out of seas, and so on. Almost every act of creation involves separation and distinctive. <clears throat> A series of separations. I think it is very profound that the Hebrew concept of separation is rooted in the same word as holy. The Greek word is used in the New Testament as holy. It has the idea of being separated onto something or set apart for a specific purpose. A setting apart, something that's consecrated. And here in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, I think we see God coming to the pinnacle of, of creation, and that is the calling forth of human life. <clears throat> Humans are created <clears throat> separate or different from animals. There is also the separation of in humanity where there is differences in gender, male and female, completely complementary, and yet each gender is unique and bears the image of, of God. Humans bear the image and likeness of God, male and female. <clears throat> now, all of this is very carefully chronicled in the book of Genesis. God did it on purpose so that we can know for sure that masculinity and femininity are God's idea. It is not something that man dreamt up of. It is not some concept that came into the world as a result of man's thinking or society. Man does not get to define masculinity or femininity. Society did not invent marriage. And so society has no right to play with marriage. Society has no right to define gender roles. God does. <clears throat> now, I'm under the assumption that all of you are aware that society, and as a result of sin coming into the world, society and sin have screwed up this creation principle to the point of astonishment. And we're seeing that not only today, but I think throughout history there were times, periods of times, where it was like that. And maybe that should not be so surprising to us, because I think that the devil is out to um, distort what God has created, and I think that um, that should not be necessarily surprising. I think the part that surprises me or that concerns me more is that it seems as if Christendom more and more, and more has become ensnared and trapped with these wrong and sinful thought patterns to the point where 
society is perhaps going to the proverbial cliff at 90 miles an hour, but the church is going to the same cliff at perhaps 30 miles per hour. I'm also assuming that you are aware that over the last 100 years, especially in the last 50 years, there has been a holocaust of change in how people think about gender. In society, American history, and actually spreading to the whole world during the 60s, the hippie movement was in full-fledged, yeah, full activity here in America. There was a number of areas that that the hippie movement especially influenced American thought and and, uh, culture that extend to this very day. And one of those main areas was the area of gender roles. The hippies introduced here in America the thought that there was no major significant difference between males and females other than the plumbing and the fact that parents and culture taught masculinity and femininity. And the hippie movement believed that if society were changed to the point where parents and culture would not teach masculinity and femininity in the way that they did, there would be no significant difference between boys and girls. And this teaching and teachings surrounding this have had a profound impact on the last 50 to 60 years. In our lifetime, there has been a tremendous effort to nullify gender and even to a greater extent to nullify gender responsibility. In 1973, for example, abortion was made legal and couples could sleep together and after fertilization, they could decide to do away with the responsibility that was theirs as parents. And in the last 30 years, as science progressed, there were things like in vitro fertilization, surrogate mothers, sperm donors, contraceptives, and cloning, and more. And all of these things can be, and in many cases are, an effort by parents to avoid responsibility. And as I prepared to preach here, like I said, I am especially um, introspective as a man, I think. And in my opinion, I think all of this especially lies with the men in society and in the church. The taking of responsibility. And this has caused an incredible dilemma in our society today. And that Boys and girls, some of these are adults now, are coming along and they don't really know whether it's okay to be the gender that they were born with biologically. Men wish they were women. Women wish they were men. There's gender confusion, there's an identity crisis, and because of all of that, I think there's an increasing crusade for acceptance of 
homosexuality and lesbianism and deviant lifestyle in general. I'm looking primarily at the text here in Genesis and then branching out to New Testament texts. And these texts are primarily Ephesians 5, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Timothy chapter 2, and then of course the passage here in Genesis 1 to 3. I've chosen several points concepts that I believe that the Bible teaches in relation to gender roles, concepts in relation to our gender. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, and here in Genesis, man and woman are both created in God's image. I think it's an important and vital concept that we need to keep in mind. That means that both men and women carry traits and characteristics of God. However, the passage in 1 Timothy indicates that patriarchy, that's just another way of saying male leadership, is God's design. And it goes on to say that man especially bears a lot of responsibility because of the fact that he was created first. God created Eve after Adam. It carries the idea of responsibility. It carries the idea of, of um, yeah, responsibility and authority. Throughout the New Testament, it's especially clear, and I'd say the Christian church in general is not necessarily divided on this point. We're, we're not necessarily in confusion whether male and female genders have equal passage or equal right in the kingdom of God. The Bible makes it very clear. There is not Jew or Greek. There is not male or female. There is not slave or free and so on. The Christian faith, I think, has been especially kind to women. And it's, the Christian faith has been known to elevate and to speak against tyranny and oppression and things of that nature. And nearly always, I think, the debate, like I said prior, is not so much about equality but it is rather an attack on patriarchy or male leadership, male responsibility. And I think in many ways it's the fault of men who have become passive and or, on the other hand, abusive in their responsibility. Man was created before women. And it carries the idea of responsibility. Secondly, we can see that God created Eve from Adam and for Adam. The passages in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and here in Genesis chapter 2 verse 18 um, bring that out. In Genesis chapter 2, the passage that was read here as a text for the sermon God says, it is not good that the man should be alone. He's talking about Adam. And that's a very interesting statement because as you look at the, at the book of Genesis, six times prior to this statement, it is mentioned that God did a creative act and he called it good. He said it's good. 
And as he surveyed all of creation, he said it was very good. So now he comes and he says it is not good. Light and darkness, good. Earth and seas, good. Vegetation, good. Sun, moon, and stars, good. Fish and birds and animals. All of those creative acts. God stood back and said, it's good. The next time we see this man, he is involved in a very strange assignment. He is asked to name the animals. And as the animals pass by him two by two, Adam becomes aware of a tremendous need in his life. There is no part of creation that is designed to complement him, to correspond to him. He sees nothing in the animals that relate to him. And he begins to realize that there is a deep void, something missing in his life. And so God, realizing, knowing that something was missing, he sets out to do something about Adam's need. And I love the story here in Genesis chapter 2. I think it's very um, word descriptive and uh, interesting the, um, to, to study. Again, the idea of separation. In verse 21, there is a deep sleep that was called, Adam was caused to go into a deep sleep, and God took a rib separation from Adam, and he fashioned a woman. She was not created from the dust of the ground like the animals. She was not created from the dust of the ground like Adam himself. She was not spoken into existence like the rest of creation. She was taken from his side. And again, I think that implies several things. Number one, I think it's a reminder that man, men in general, are very incompetent and incomplete without women in their lives. We're constantly reminded of that. And what has happened here is that God has taken something from man, but brought it back to him. He has given him Eve, woman. Actually, specifically, the word here in Genesis 2, prior to the fall, is woman. The English language itself carries the idea that it was from man. The Hebrew word is the idea of Isha. She shall be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. We'll talk about this in the next point. The text says she was brought to man and became his help meet. Not his help mate, although that is often very much true. The word help meet carries the idea of filling the empty spots in your life. It carries the idea of complementation and someone to answer to, someone to help you along in life, someone to walk with you. It carries the idea of, of completion. And Eve was an appropriate match for Adam. And women in general, again, are a very appropriate match for men here in 2021. That is just as true today as it was. We are designed to complement each other. <clears throat> the third thing that we see here is that Adam named Eve. And I sort of blush to make a point out of this. And it sounds like I'm suggesting that women are on the level of animals because Adam named the animals and he also named Eve. 
But really, I think beyond all of that is that it is easy sometimes for us to stoop to the thought process that we are the first generation that has this figured out. We're the first generation that treats women respectfully. We're the first generation that has a, whatever blank you wanna fill in there. I think if it's true that we, as men, love the women in our lives, then I think it's just as true that our great, great, great grandfather also loved the women in his life. And it's true, I think, that our father, my father, loved our moms. And we can, um, I think we should be careful that we don't overreact to the things that cause us or that stimulate us for whatever reason. And, yeah, react, overreact to abuses that we're aware of. And maybe that overreaction can sometimes cause us to go into the opposite ditch. Adam named the animals, and that does not mean that he... The fact that he named Eve does not mean anything other than the fact that I think it's an act of responsibility, it's an act of authority, it is perhaps even an act of affection. Prior to the fall, here in Genesis chapter 2, she shall be called woman. The Hebrew word is isha. It carries the idea of derivation. Adam named Eve woman because she was taken from man. The next point here is the fact that in the New Testament especially, there is this in Interesting, at least to me it stands out, how that Adam, man, men, are specifically, especially implicated in the fact that sin came into the world. The curse of sin remains on the human race to this day. And the New Testament is especially explicitly clear that sin came into the world by Adam. And it's not talking about Adam in the general sense, it's talking about in the specific sense. What's up with that? The text in Genesis says that Eve took of the fruit and gave it to her husband. She did eat and gave to her husband. When Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden and discovered that they were naked and they hid themselves, when God was walking in the garden, who did he address? Adam. Despite the fact that technically Adam was the second sinner, it was Adam who was to answer to God's questions. And because of Adam's sin, the Bible tells us, the curse of sin remains on the human race to this day. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as one man's sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men. That's the New American Standard Version. It was Adam who was the one who was blamed for bringing sin into the human race, in spite of the fact that he was not the only one who sinned in the garden. 
in spite of the fact that technically he was the second sinner, shouldn't Eve have been penalized more severely for being the one to interact with Satan and, and uh, cause or lead Adam into sin? Shouldn't Eve be recognized as the one who took her destiny into her own hands and ate the forbidden fruit? But the Bible is very clear in Romans and in 1 Corinthians and in Genesis that Adam bore the responsibility. It is in Adam that all die. Every time the male marker Adam comes up in the New Testament, it is a reminder to us that in Adam's sin, we all are sinners. And the creation principle of masculinity is that we men bear the responsibility to a much greater degree and to a much greater extent than we often would like to think. I don't think the male marker in the New Testament where Adam is mentioned is something to be resisted or resented. I think it's a rem reminder that protection is one of the key points that God has put in place for women in general. And men are the ones who bear the primary responsibility for that protection. It's also interesting to note in Genesis chapter 3, and we'll talk about this just a little later, God talked to the serpent and Eve and Adam, and he had several things to point out to them, verdicts, statements. And the first statement is to the serpent, and it involves conflict, all the way to the cross. It's the first prophecy of Jesus right there. The next part was to Eve, and it involves sorrow. And specifically, the woman's greatest sorrow is going to be with the people that are closest to her, her children. Relationally, there's going to be sorrow that is going to be part of the woman's experience. And along with that, there's going to be a specific order of function. We call that headship. Because of the destructive nature of sin, this headship ordained by God, like I said earlier, unfortunately, has turned into tyranny. And that's not okay. More than ever, more than ever, women are in need of loving, tender, and protective men in their lives. Remember, Adam... Man was taken from the earth, for the earth. And the statement there in Genesis 3 bears that out. Woman was taken from a person, for a person. Genesis brings that out. And the curse to Adam, or the verdict of God to Adam, centered on his relationship to the earth. It says that he is going to have to work in the sweat of his brow. There's going to be futility and labor. And the earth from which he was created and from over which he works is waiting to receive him. Dust thou art, and to dust thou shalt return, was the verdict that God placed on the man specifically. From that day to this, 
man is reminded of the presence of death every day. The words of death were not necessarily spoken to Satan, were not necessarily spoken to Eve. The penalty of death was spoken to Adam in Genesis chapter 3. The best part of this story here in Genesis 3, as I see it, is that in this same passage, at the very specific conversation that he was having with the serpent, with Eve, and with Adam, there is this verdict. We call it the curse. And in that same conversation, God moved in to rescue them. Rescue and redemption is very much a part of this, of this same discussion. It's while the curse and the verdict is given basically immediately by God, in that same conversation, there is also immediate grace and redemption. I'm blessed by that as I think of it. God's grace. In Genesis chapter 3, let's just turn our pages over to that in our Bibles here. Genesis chapter 3, verses uh, 14 and following, God gives this verdict we call we know as the curse on the serpent on eve and then lastly to adam and adam responds to that it seems as if adam is aware of the responsibility that is his he named his wife eve because she is to be the mother of all living that's a bit ironic to think of the fact that Adam has just been told that there's going to be death. There's going to be suffering. Eve has just said there's going to be suffering. It has just been told her that there's going to be sorrow. There's going to be futility. Adam and Eve together would face this area of sorrow and futility. And Adam responds by saying, he called his wife's name Eve because she is the mother of all living. I think it's, a, it's basically a reminder of his faith, the mother of all living. Remember the prophecy here earlier to, and, and the verdict to the, to the serpent was that there's going to be enmity between the snake and the woman, and between her offspring and the snake's offspring. That's all of us. There's going to be conflict, and it has to do with Satan, enmity. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel, reading from the, new, uh, the NIV. <clears throat> Ultimately, the seed of the woman would bring Jesus. The seed of the woman would bring an end to death and sin and suffering and futility. End to the curse. Adam believed that and expressed that by naming his wife Eve, which is actually the second time that Eve has been named here. That is maybe just a little bit of a quick biblical flyover of what I see as some of the primary passages that talk about gender 
roles. In the last part of the sermon here, I want to talk just a little bit more practically, things that I think, and I want to especially emphasize that I'm not trying to say all that there is to be said on this point. It is some of the things that maybe especially stand out to me as I prepared and thought about this sermon this week, and perhaps even in the past. I want to talk practically about some things that we can do to create gender-healthy environments here in our church, in our youth group, and in our homes. How can we raise children? How can we exemplify healthy gender concepts to people around us? I'm sure I'm not listing all of the things. First of all, in homes, in our homes. I think the Bible brings out very clearly that woman is created from a person for a person. And man is created from the earth for the earth. I think you can see that in Genesis 2 and 3. Ephesians in chapter 5 especially clarifies that male and female roles are likened to the role of Christ and the church. And if, that, if you carried that, that example into practicality and to living, I think it simply implies that women are created primarily to fill a role that is service-oriented, roles that are ministerial, roles that are complementary in nature. And I think, I think, at least the women that I know in my life are especially good at this. God has designed it that way. They feel deeper for situations and people they are more able to empathize and better able to come up with a, a plan or a purpose for serving, especially people that are around them. And that's a blessing. I think it implies sort of an inborn nature of women. Women in general, I think, are designed to especially be in a role of service and ministry. That doesn't mean that men aren't, but I think just saying, I think the picture there in Ephesians, where it talks about Christ and the church, you think about what is the responsibility of the church throughout the New Testament especially, I think you can see a very strong nature of commands are given to the church to be hospitable, to make disciples, to um, serve people around us. That's the responsibility of the church. And carrying that template over, which is what Ephesians 5 does to, the, to women, the implication is that I think it's important for women to focus on a circle of ministry and service. And I think primarily it should be around their homes and their family, especially if there's, especially mothers and married women. <clears throat> I think it's important that we think about this more than we, than we do sometimes. There are so many areas and a aspects of service and ministry, and I think women in general um, do better at this and do, do it in a way that, that men perhaps are not completely able to always. I think there's a strong potential that when women, mothers especially, 
make business and functions that are outside the home a focal point in their life. I think there's a strong potential for dysfunction to enter in homes and family. There have been lots of polls taken, and I just did a little gander. Just searching polls, most of them are from, not from Amish and Mennonite polls at all. These polls show over and over that family life and marriages suffer when mom has a primary interest outside of the home. And these polls are taken from society. And I'm not sure sometimes what it might take for us to be convinced that it is actually this way. I think when women, especially mothers, establish a circle of ministry around their home, what is being done is fulfilling the type of Christ in the church, like Ephesians 5 brings out. We are to make disciples of whom? As Christians, we're to make disciples of Jesus Christ, our head. And we're supposed to point people to Christ. The church's functions are more service-oriented in nature. And I believe that we can create healthy culture by doing the same, by applying that template into our homes and families. I've heard testimonies, listened to testimonials from Protestant-type people who come from a background of egalitarianism, and that's just another way of saying equality, or egalitarian theology simply means that is another way of saying that there's no difference and that sort of thing. And they have adopted what I believe to be the creation model, the scriptural principle of patriarchal complementarianism. Again, I'm using sort of big words, but it convinces me when I hear these stories. I'm convinced. I think I'm convinced that when women, especially mothers, adopt this principle, I think there is a freedom that's found and a satisfaction that is often tends to be one of the missing elements in our society today. <clears throat> At the risk of being very secular here, Dr. Phil, who is a secular marriage counselor, and I want to emphasize that, I disagree with lots of things that he says. But he says, that a man, he's talking about gender roles here, he says that a man should be a hunter. Man should be the attacker. And he should kill something and bring it back to the cave. That's Dr. Phil's way of saying it. And it's the women's responsibility to make that something beautiful. I'm not sure exactly what all he's saying, but And that's a very secular view in theory. I, I get that. But really, I think a woman's role, especially a stay-at-home mother, in many ways has the world mediated to them by her husband or through her husband. He works. He explores new things. He deals with the, the aspect of futility in the business world and in whatever job he has. He sorts through the options and the recourses, and he brings the best of it back to his wife. And in many ways, I think this model spares women in general. They never encounter the worst of man's day. In Genesis 3, we looked at the curse, or the verdict is what I call it, that was given to Adam, the man, the, the, man, the male in that relationship, and to Eve, 
And I think when a mother goes out and has primary interests outside of her home and family, it's my opinion that she not only has to battle against the, the female curse, the verdict that was given there in Genesis 3, but she also, in many ways, battles the man's, the male curse, or the verdict that was given to the male. Again, food for thought, some of my ideas. I want to talk now to you youth. <clears throat> you men and women in the youth stage of your life are becoming, you're gaining experience. You're, the experiences of your life are shaping and forming what you will become. And you build on that experience. Your body of experience gets bigger and bigger. And it should cause you to be more wise and more mature. And generally, that's how it works. You're learning to function. At the stage of life you're in, you're learning to function in roles that are not directly under the umbrella of your parents anymore. More and more individuality. And it is in critically, I think, in critically important for you to learn and get a grasp on the fact that your roles, whether men or women, are incredibly centered on the fact that you are male or female. It dominates our lives, especially when we're, yeah, especially in your stage of life. There is experience that's drawn, there is a body of experience that shapes and that pushes you in a certain direction. It's my opinion, and I think the Bible teaches, that men are especially responsible to be initiators. And that means that you young men, and I'm especially looking to you young men as I, as I talk here. There's things that could be said to young ladies as well. I don't have many things in my notes, but just for the purpose of, of today, I think it's especially important that you young men develop skills that make you effective Initiators, work on this. Become initiators in the youth group, in your homes, in your relationships. Take the lead in your relationships. Take charge of youth activities. Take charge of social and spiritual activities. Bear the responsibility. Don't take that lightly. I think youth are in a stage of life, it just goes without saying, that dating and engagement and marriage are definitely something that you all think about. Probably a lot, some of you. I think youth should spend more time thinking about becoming the right person and less time about meeting the right person. Develop healthy gender roles in the stage that you're in. <clears throat> I'm going to turn now and talk to you fathers and families in general, dads. You need to cherish the mother of your children. I think it is one of the primary responsibilities for men in the home. Take care of the woman in your home. Your children it's been proven over and over again. When you take care of the woman in your life, your children will be physically, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically benefited 
dads, fathers, when your girls, when your daughters see you treating your wife with dignity and respect and appreciation, your daughters are going to get the, get the message that it's okay for them to be female. That it's good for them to be girls. It's good to be a woman. It's secure and safe to be feminine. When a girl sees her father treat her mother with love, it makes her feel like men can be trusted. When a boy sees his father loving his mom, he gets the idea that masculinity is a good thing. And dads, fathers especially, I think need to model masculinity to their children. And I would say especially to your sons. Children's values are almost totally developed by what they see at home or don't see at home. Things that some of these perhaps are very little things that are either done or not done. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, God the Father, the Father of Jesus, at his baptism said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. That's an incredible show of approval. And I think it's a directive for how we fathers should respond to our children, perhaps our sons specifically. There's way too often that children spend a lifetime waiting and seeking for their father's approval, sometimes never getting it. Don't make them beg. Don't make your children beg for your approval. Don't make them wait for it. Make sure that you acknowledge their accomplishments. Make sure that you let them know that you are proud of the things they're doing well. It's my opinion and my belief that a boy believes he is a man when his father tells him. A boy believes that he is a man when his father tells him. A girl believes she is beautiful when her father tells her. A girl believes that it is awesome to be feminine when her father tells her. Fathers, I think, bear, specifically bear the responsibility to affirm their children's existence and their children's gender, their appearance, their performance. And when that takes place, when that's done in a healthy manner, it causes children to become very well-grounded and very well-adjusted. Conversely, when this is not done, when this is absent in a boy or girl's life, that boy or girl becomes very vulnerable to be picked off by some guy that you as a dad don't approve of. Because he communicates the things to her that you didn't. I close with the challenge and the reminder that we humans alone are created in the image of God. Nothing else, nothing else in all of creation reflects God's character. Nothing in the rest of creation 
reflects God's spiritual capacity, moral or intellectual ability, like the creation of man and woman. And I think it is good news. It's a blessing that God created us male and female. We should see it as that. There is no reason that we should have some sort of existential angst or problem with definition that goes along with that. It doesn't seem to me. It is God who defines us. It is God who defined us. He created us. And he called us male and female. God called us man and woman. And we are created complexly by a sovereign, almighty God. And God, it is God who has a distinct plan and a distinct purpose for each of us individually and for each gender. God created human beings for his glory and for his good purpose. And part of that purpose includes our individuality as male and female. Being made in God's image as male and female is not a matter of one's own individual preferences. Rather, it's a part of God's beautiful design and his purpose and his plan. It's my prayer that you'll have been inspired to continue this research and study. My prayer is that the things that I said that were not in alliance with Scripture would not be things that you would particularly remember today, but the things that I did say that are in alliance with Scripture would be things that you would remember and build on and develop and ultimately live. May God help us to do that. Let's kneel together in prayer. If you're able, I invite you to do that.